Good morning again. Can everyone hear me? I know we've had a, a little bit of technical difficulty maybe this morning and being able to hear in our, in our various campuses across Poplar Spring. Um, I think the outdoor campus is, uh, is uh, maybe struggled a little bit with the volume this morning, but I'm trusting that you guys can hear. If, if not, let, let uh, Pastor Michael know and he'll tweak some knobs. But um, man, what truth in that last song that we just sung, that Christ is our sure and steady anchor in a day when who knows what can be trusted and what information is being given and what news outlets are saying and what social media is saying and the, the mass confusion that we see across our nation and world. There is one certain truth that we can hold to, that Christ is a rock, he is our anchor, and he is unmovable, and he is true and faithful and steady. Um, man, that, that, that's good truth to sing this morning, church. Um, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Esther chapter 8. We're going to continue our study this morning in Esther chapter 8. Uh, blessed my heart last week as we were driving um, to, um, to visit family, to be able to hear Pastor Michael preach Esther chapter 7. Uh, wonderful job expositing that passage. And then I hope that you were able to see the, the video that he posted to YouTube and Facebook uh, later in the week to sort of give some marching orders and some, some application from the sermon as we think more deeply on it as uh, as he um, gave that video out to help us think through the text of Esther 7 and how we apply that uh, today. Uh, if you haven't seen that yet, I encourage you to go check that out as well. Uh, it'll be a blessing to you. Um, but as you turn, turn to chapter 8 of Esther, we're going to continue our study this morning. Uh, the, the baseball player, uh, philosopher Yogi Berra, uh, had this memorable saying. Um, if you weren't sure where it came from, it, it's from him. Uh, it ain't over till it's over. Now, uh, there's many ways that you could apply that text in different uh, arenas of life, uh, but I think that text summarizes for us pretty well Esther chapter 8. It ain't over till it's over, and uh, many of the issues that we've been wrestling with in chapter 8 have been resolved already. The villain, Haman, has been executed, uh, literally uh, with the help of the, the 75 feet tall um, gallows that he constructed for his enemy, Mordecai, the Jew. Uh, he was put to death. But even though Haman is dead, his death decree is not dead. It's still in place. The laws of Persia, especially the king of Persia, are irrevocable. And so what will be done with the Jewish people? That's sort of the question we're left wrestling with as, as chapter 7 comes to a close and we start chapter 8 this morning. What's going to happen with this edict that's irrevocable, that we'll see again in the text this morning, cannot be removed? What happens with the people of God, the Jews that are living under this edict? I'm going to give you the roadmap for this morning, kind of where we're headed uh, in our sermon this morning. Uh, we're going to walk through the text, chapter 8, five considerations, five major things that happen in the text. I'll give those to you as we go. And then once we arrive at the end of our text, we're going to spend a few minutes at the end just making application. And there I'll have seven, seven steps or points or thoughts of application, ways that we learn or are informed by the text, ways our theology is informed by the text, ways that we leave here, thinking, acting, doing differently as a result of Esther chapter 8. So if you're with me now, Esther chapter 8, we'll start in verse 1. The first major thing that we see, our observation in the text, is the reward that's given in verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. 
You ever received a, a good gift? Like something that you were really, really thankful for, you were grateful for it, but it was not exactly what you were asking for? When we were kids, um, one Christmas, we, my parents had bought a new house that came with some land, some property, some acreage, and all that me and my sisters could think about were riding four-wheelers and go-karts on this property. We looked at them in the little uh, sales paper, the, the Sears and Roebuck catalog that would come out around Christmas time. We looked at them on, uh, we'd go to the, the, these ATV stores and just drool over these, these ATVs that we wanted to play so desperately in this property with. And we were pretty convinced, because mom and dad had entertained this idea, that that's exactly what we were getting for Christmas. That we were getting a go-kart for my two sisters and a, and a four-wheeler for myself. Well, Christmas morning came and we opened up presents. And there were no four-wheelers or go-karts. And we were kind of bummed. We were like, well, but there was, there was one gift still under the tree. And so we weren't panicking quite yet. This last gift was addressed to all of the kids. Now, this box that was under the tree was not big enough to contain a four-wheeler and go-karts. But it's not unlike my mom, especially, to wrap up the keys, right? To kind of throw you off. Like the keys are in the box. You open the keys, and whoa, they're outside, and you, you're excited. So we're, we're, we're on pins and needles as we open this last present together, and we open it, and guess what? It was no keys. It was a computer. And we were like, I mean, I guess we could play games on the computer. I guess that'll be fun. But it was definitely not going to, that computer was going to do nothing for me and that mud hole on the back of the property that I so desperately wanted to jump off into with a new four-wheeler. I was really bummed, but had to act excited, thankful, grateful, and I was. Well, little did we know that that was part of the plan. Mom and dad needed a new computer for themselves, and so they bought themselves a new computer and put our names on it to sort of throw us off the trail, and uh, the keys to the four-wheeler and the go-karts were in our stockings, which is the last thing we do on Christmas morning, and they were outside waiting on us. So uh, that story, though, is what I thought about when I came to Esther chapter 8. Like, the, 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 the feast is over, right? The feast from chapter 7 is over. Esther's outed Haman and his evil plan. He's been found out. He's been executed. And then his goods, Haman's goods, are plundered. And, and Esther is the, the, the recipient of those goods, of Haman's estate. And remember, he's a wealthy guy, so this is no small thing that Esther would come into all of this wealth that she then bestows upon Mordecai. And then the relationship between Esther and Mordecai is revealed, and Mordecai is rewarded with the signet ring, the the second in command in all of Persia. What an honor. What a power that was that was given to him. That was Haman's. But while these rewards are great and amazing, considering the situation that they were in just just a, a few hours and days before, neither Esther nor Mordecai asked for these things. You see, there's something else that Esther really wanted, something far more valuable to her, something more important to her than all of these things that they've been given, than uh, Haman's house and his wealth and and the king's ring. And the thing that she wanted, she was willing to put her life on the line for one more time. And that leads us to the second observation in our text, the second major thing that happens in our text. You see it in verses 3 through 6. It's the request. Look at verse 3 with me. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king, and when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleased the king, if I found favor in his sight, if, this, if the thing seems right before the king and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, 
which he wrote to destroy all the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Despite the, the relief that Esther must have felt when uh, she knew that Haman was, was hanged, that he was dead and gone, that he was no longer a threat to her or to Mordecai, despite that relief and, and despite the sense of vindication that she probably felt when she's given his property, right, his house and his land and his possessions, it had to have felt like some vindication there. Esther could not be satisfied. She couldn't uh, be content because she remembered the doom that remained over all of her people, all of her kindred, all of the other Jews in the land. The edict was still there. It still loomed, and it, and it meant that she couldn't delay. She couldn't give up. She, she had to go before the king this, this one more time. As we're talking through this text, I want you to note two words in this section, and both of them come from verse 3. Look at the verse 3 again. It says, Esther spoke again to the king. That's the first observation. We'll circle back why that's important. Then there's the second word I want you to note in verse 3. It says she fell at his feet. That's the king. And she wept and pleaded with him. I want us to see her willingness here to put her life at risk again by speaking to the king on behalf of her people, right? The golden scepter is extended to her again, meaning that it wasn't safe until that moment. She's putting her life at risk again, and as that image is in your mind of, of her going before the king, of that courage that she has, that courage in her heart and bravery that she, that she risks it all to go back before the king before, for her people, I want you to ask yourself, what am I that persistent in? Like, what things am I so committed to that I would do them again and again and again and again? And then, take it a step further... And ask yourself, what am I so committed to that I would do again and again and again, even if my life was in danger for doing that thing, right? Now, I'm not going to fill this in for you yet. I want you to wrestle with the question. I want you to wrestle with the question. I'm raising it here because I want us thinking about what things are, what habits do we have? What patterns do we have? What commitments do we have that we would risk everything for? And then that second word. Esther pleaded. The idea there in the original language is she's literally begging. She's on her knees weeping and begging through tears for the lives of, of her people. She could not. She didn't even try to conceal her burden for her people. The full depth of her emotion is on display at Xerxes' feet as she falls down to her knees and she's weeping and through tears asking him to do something about this death decree. And so in a similar way, ask yourself, what am I that passionate about? What am I that concerned with? What would I go to my knees for and beg for, weep for? You may say, well, nothing, Matt. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get weepy about anything. That's just not who I am. I'm, I'm not emotional. I'm not going to wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm not, I'm not like that, as if stoicism is what God has called us to. He's never asked us to conceal our feelings, our emotions, from whom do you think you've received those emotions, those feelings? Who has built you to carry the weight of certain things on your heart? It's okay to have them. It's okay to show them. And so this morning, even before we begin to apply the text, I want you to wrestle with what sort of things evoke that sort of emotion in you. And we'll circle back there at the end. Well, the question, as we move into the third part of our text this morning, is how would Xerxes respond to this sorrow-filled request from Esther? And that's the third observation of the text is the response. So we've seen the reward, 
We've seen the request, now the response. Look at verse 7 with me. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be evoked. Xerxes' response here seems cold, and it seems that he lacks compassion. I mean, think about this. It's cold because in that, after seeing this, this display of emotion from Esther, she's down on her knees weeping on behalf of her people. He simply responds by saying, hey, didn't I give you all of Haman's stuff? Like, haven't I killed Haman? Didn't I hang him on the gallows? And you're, you're not satisfied? You're, you're still not satisfied. You see, hey, the King Xerxes is ready to slip back into passivity. He's ready just to slide back into doing what's easiest and doing uh, what's best for him doing what's best for his reign and his rule, so he would do nothing about this edict. But they could if they wanted to. He reminds them that they have the signet ring. It's sort of like he's saying, hey, remember, Persian law cannot be revoked, so that edict can't be undone, but you can write one that supersedes it or even contradicts it. In other words, Mordecai, the authority that comes with your new office, the authority that comes with this signet ring that I've given you, means that you can write something to deliver your people. You're the new number too. So if you want to save the life of the whoever those people, the, the, the whoever people are that you're worried about, well, go ahead and write something. Go ahead and do it. Sign it with the, the ring. There's no compassion in Xerxes. He doesn't care. Instead of doing what's right, he resorts back to doing what's most advantageous for him, which in this case is nothing. That leads to the fourth observation in the text. The reversal. Look at verses 9 through 14 and you'll see exactly what Mordecai does after hearing this instruction from the king. Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, in the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to, say, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and in their language. And he wrote in the name of the king, Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And because this edict could not be changed, the old one that is, a new one was needed, one that would supersede the old one, a better one that would override what was already in place. And what you see is that with the old edict, where only death had been decreed, there's now an opportunity with the new edict for defense to take place. 
Where there was only heartache for the Jews, now there is the opportunity for hope for the Jews. There is hope, but, but notice with me, before we pass over this section, that it's not a complete fix, right? It's not that there's no more threat. It's just that they have an opportunity now to defend themselves. One scholar in his commentary said, For all practical purposes, the effect was that this new decree gave the Jews the legal protection they needed to fight back, stripping any attackers of their favored legal position. Nevertheless, it didn't remove the threat against the Jewish people. The Jews still faced an uncertain outcome. But at least now, their, their resistance, their fighting back, their defense would not be seen as rebellion in Persia. And like Haman with his decree, Mordecai made sure that this edict is written in every language and it's spread throughout the whole uh, empire and it's delivered to every people where they can understand it as quickly as possible. Right? It even mentions twice here the king's horses right, as couriers. And it even mentions that these were the fastest. These were the, the best bred. These were like the race horses of the day uh, from the, the royal stud, right? not talking about Xerxes there. The good news was on the way for God's people. How beautiful were the hooves delivering it? That leads to the fifth observation in the text, our final one. You see the rejoicing, the rejoicing. Look at verses 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I want to draw out a comparison for us, for you. Um, from chapter 4 to write what we just read in chapter 8. A comparison of what was said about the response of these edicts in chapter 4 and chapter 8. In chapter 4, if you remember back that far, Mordecai clothed himself in sackcloth and ashes upon hearing of Haman's decree. Now in chapter 8, he's clothed in royal robes and a golden crown, right? Those must have been some pretty fresh digs, too, because he walks out from being with the king, and the whole city starts shouting and rejoicing and cheering. I've never looked that good. I've never looked that good, such that I got up here, and you guys just started clapping. I'm like, what's going on? That's a spiffy new sports coach you've got there. They did for him. That's how good this thing looked. I mean, note, too, and when it's talking about his robes there and his clothing, this is not the first time that Mordecai's been dressed up like the king, right? If you remember back to the first time he was dressed up like the king, he was paraded around the city square by Haman, his enemy, because of him calling out the assassination attempt against Xerxes. So he was dressed up like the king there, but this time it's different. It's different because these robes aren't coming off this time. This is permanent. This is for good. This is royalty and splendor because he's now the number two. He has Haman's position and authority. So there's a, there's a contrast for you. They continue, though. In chapter 3, when Haman issued his death decree, the city was in mad confusion, right? You remember that? As Haman and, and, and Xerxes sat down to have a drink, the city was just in confusion. Now, chapter 8, it says the city's rejoicing. There's joy throughout the city. In chapter 4, the Jewish community in particular responded to the death decree with four kinds of distress. It's chapter 4, verse 3, if you want to see that. The four kinds of distress are mentioned there. Mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing. And now, the Jewish people in the land again respond with four things, but this time it's four kinds of delight. You see it in verse 16. Light, 
and gladness and joy and honor. There are many comparisons here in the text. You can bet that these are intentional from the writer. Esther is putting this together for us. It's a beautiful piece of literature. But even the wording, think about the edicts themselves and what was written. Look at verse 11 here in the text. The wording even is, is, is a mirror image that the Jews now have the opportunity to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of people or province that might attack them. It's the exact same wording from Haman's decree. You can bet Mordecai did that on purpose. That was intentional. But perhaps the most incredible comparison that we can make, the, the shift that may, may be most shocking to us but most incredible to observe in the text Remember that the Jews, as we read through this, have gone from fasting to feasting. But many of the Persians did the opposite. They went from feasting to fear. Look at verse 17. It says, many of the peoples from the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The irony here is so rich, church family. The word of God is so beautiful and incredible. Even from a literary standpoint, professing Jews, right, uh, the, the, professing to be a Jew became all of the rage in a pagan empire, right? Whether this is true conversion or not, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I doubt it is. They, the text says they, they declared themselves Jews. Who knows their hearts? Who knows where they are right now? But think about this. Think about what this means theologically and, 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 and with the power of God at work here in Persia. No sooner had Esther conquered her fear and revealed her true identity in relation to her Jewishness then many of the, the pagans around her apparently chose to pretend to be Jewish, motivated by precisely the same kind of fear. Do you see that reversal in the text? It's incredible. It's incredible that God would use a Jewish woman stepping up, becoming bold and, and, and emboldened in her faith by this challenge from Mordecai, her cousin, she comes out in her Jewishness, and now the, 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 the roles have reversed such that pagan people are saying they're Jewish because they have fear that they may be persecuted. The Lord is sovereign, and he's in charge. So that's our text this morning. That's our, our text from chapter 8. Now I want to walk through and ask some questions of the text and begin to apply the text and see what the Lord would teach us, how he would inform our theology and our thinking, how he would change our, our actions and our lives as Christians today. So seven for us, seven applications, and we'll hit these quickly. Number one, let the joy you experience in your salvation produce compassion in you for those who are without it. Esther was not just concerned with her own survival here. That, that's clear to us over and over, week after week in the text. She's concerned for the survival of others, of the people of God, the Jewish people in Persia. In the same way, our salvation is not an end unto itself. I've heard several pastors say it. I'm not the, sure who the first was, but it, it certainly wasn't me. The gospel came to you as it was going to someone else. In other words, as gospel believers, we don't live in a cul-de-sac where the gospel comes to us and it stops. We live on an interstate highway. We live where the gospel's spreading to someone else through us. So as a gospel believer, it came to you and you're sending it to someone else. So who are you sending it to? Let me ask you maybe a little bit more pointed question. Do you have a genuine concern for non-Christians? Is their eternal destination a reality for you? Is it such a real reality for you that it breaks your heart that there are people in your family, in your neighborhood, at work, that don't know Christ? God forbid that we would have the attitude that, I've got my golden ticket, right? I've got heaven. 
I've got fire insurance, and, and I'm fine. I'm not really concerned with those around me. They make their choices. It's up to them. God forbid. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, I've often told you, and now I say it again through tears, with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, and their end is destruction. Paul's writing here to the church at Philippi, and he's, he's literally weeping. He's wiping tears from the parchment as he writes. Why? Because the lost were breaking his heart. The reality of people and the reality of hell was real to Paul, so real to Paul that he's broken as he writes this letter to the church at Philippi. He's weeping for the lost. Esther wept for the Jews that needed to be delivered. Do you or do I, do we weep for those who need to be delivered? Do we beg God to save souls? When's the last time you shed a tear because you, you were begging God to, to intervene and to open someone's eyes and to break someone's heart and to soften someone's heart to the gospel? Do you plead with God to use you to spread his glory? Listen to the burden in the words of one of my heroes in the faith, Adoniram Judson, missionary to Burma. He says this, how do Christians discharge this trust committed to them? They let three-fourths of the world sleep the sleep of death, ignorant of the simple truth that a Savior died for them, content that if they can be useful in their little circle of acquaintances, then they'll quietly sit and see whole nations perish for the lack of knowledge. God, may it never be said of us. I asked you earlier, what evokes emotion from you? What moves you to, to tears, to sadness? What brings you to your knees to plead before God? What burdens your heart so much that you must act? You can't help but to act. I pray that the joy of our salvation, the experience that we have in Christ, the freedom that we found in Christ, would lead us to those who have not found him, who are not found by him. And you may say in a moment of honesty, Matt, I just I don't have that sort of compassion for the lost. I hear you talk about it. Seems you're fired up over it, but I, I don't have it. Well, first, I would say thanks for the honesty. It's no use lying or denying it. Christ sees our hearts. But second, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's talking about Jesus, and he says this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. So there's good news for you. If you would be honest this morning and say, hey, I want to have a broken heart for the lost. I want to have compassion. I want to be compelled to act and to speak the gospel to people, but I, but I don't have it. Well, there's, there's hope for you. There's someone who can help you, and his name is Jesus, because we see in the text that he had it, and he wants to form you into himself by the power of the Spirit. So I challenge you. I challenge you to pray this prayer. You pray it right now. I'll challenge you to pray it daily. Let it be a part of your daily time before the Lord and in seeking him to pray, Jesus, help me, help me to have as much compassion for the lost, for the, the, the broken, the dejected, the, the dejected, as, as Matthew chapter 9 says, the distressed, those that are maligned and marginalized and oppressed. Help me to have as much compassion for them as you have for me. If, if we could pray that daily, do you think the Holy Spirit wouldn't answer that prayer? I just, I don't, I don't think we're praying that. I don't think we're seeking that sort of compassion, that sort of, of love and care and concern for the lost around us. Church, I pray that we would go before the Lord and ask him to do that in our hearts and watch, watch how our eyes are open to things we never saw. 
Watch how our hearts are broken for things that didn't bother us before. Because he's answering that prayer. Give us the compassion that he had for us. Second point of application here is we're just thinking through this text and how we apply this. Continue pleading to God for the salvation of your loved ones. Like this is super applicable to our lives. As, as we look at Esther here in the text and she's pleading before Xerxes, let it be an encouragement to you to continue pleading to your heavenly father. Think about the contrast between Xerxes and our heavenly father. We've done this multiple weeks where we see Xerxes and the, the garbage king that he was and our heavenly father who is all loving and, and infinite in mercy. Why would you not go? If Esther's willing to go before that kind of a king, why would you not be willing to go before our king, our heavenly father? Maybe you've been praying for a family member or a friend or a coworker for years that God would save them. Maybe they are on your daily list of things to pray for, and they have been for decades, and you're on the verge of giving up, thinking, I'll never see change in them. Or maybe you've already given up, and you, you haven't prayed for them in a while because you haven't seen change, and is there any use? Keep asking. Keep pleading. Don't give up. Your life's not at risk. Their eternal souls are. Go before God, who has all mercy, and beg him to soften hearts. And here's the thing. Don't just stop at salvation. We should be praying for the salvation of the lost, but keep pleading with God for the sanctification of believers. Once we are born again, that's a part of what we're to do for one another, that we were to pray on behalf of one another, that daily we would grow in the knowledge and likeness of Christ. Mamas and daddies, keep begging God to save your children or to grow your children in Christ's likeness. Don't give up praying that. You need a guide, maybe words to help you voice that prayer? Write this down. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, Paul gives us a model prayer like this to pray for one another in the household of faith, but for our kids, for our neighbors, for our coworkers that we would want to see saved or that we would want to see grow in their sanctification, being made like Christ. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1, starting in verse 9. And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking you that, listen to what he asks, listen to what he asks on behalf of them, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, that, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Man, church, if we could be diligent in praying that for our kids, if we could be diligent in praying that for one another, the, the church would be diligent in play, praying that for fellow believers, for a broken world around us. May the Lord empower us that we wouldn't grow weary of, of praying and pleading on behalf of others. Number three. Number three. Remember, these, these two go together too. Number three and number four sort of go together. So remember that the victory is won and let that bring you great courage and confidence. Think about this. Mordecai's edict informed the Jews that the king had granted them permission to defend themselves. That's it. If the Jews celebrated in hearing that they could simply fight for victory, how much more, how much greater should our joy be since Christ has already won our victory, right? Like that comparison, that side-by-side -side should be obvious to us. And the implications here are clear. You don't have to hope for victory. 
You don't have to sit with your fingers crossed or, or biting your nails hoping that this thing works out. You can come with all courage and confidence knowing the victory's won. Christ has secured it. Here's the parallel reality here. John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus says this, I'm the vine. You guys know this text. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think when we hear that verse, especially in isolation, when it's not being taught, we hear that verse, we take away the last phrase. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that is true. But the inverse of it is equally true. That if you are in Christ, he's the vine, we're the branches. If we are in Christ, you will bear much fruit. <laughs> do you hear that promise? Do you hear that reality? It is uh, for sure. It is irrevocable. That if you are in Christ, you will bear much fruit. The victory is won. He never asked you to do anything without him. Because you are in him. If you are born again, if you are a child of God, you are in Christ. So for those of us who are born again, who have experienced new birth, we're not just hoping things turn out okay. We know they will. And we live in that confidence, in that freedom. The victory is won. But that goes with our, our fourth application and the one that comes right after it. Remember also that you're required to participate in the battle. For the Jews living in Persia, their salvation wouldn't simply come because Mordecai had made this announcement, had written this edict. It would come from action on their parts. Now, we need to be careful here. We'll discuss this more next week in our text because it's really applicable next week. But if God's people were going to be saved in Persia, they would still have to fight back those who attacked them. Now, as we make application here to our lives spiritually in Christ, we need to be careful because there's nothing that we do to fight for, to earn, to win our victory. Christ has done that. He has done everything necessary for our atonement. But that does not mean that we are passive in our sanctification, in our becoming like Christ, in our growing in the disciplines of grace. Yes, number three, we remember that our victory is won, that Christ has won our salvation, that the end is finished, it's accomplished. But also, yes, we strive to put forth effort in our advance in what Christ has achieved, in our becoming like him, in our growth, our sanctification, our discipleship. Think about what Paul says. He says the gospel didn't produce passivity, but instead, and now I'm quoting Paul, I press on toward the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. In other words, he pursued the goal not in hopes of Christ taking his life, but simply because he'd already been taken hold of by Christ. That's the reason. That's the motivation. Not that we would win Christ's love, but because Christ had already set his love upon us. We strive. We yearn to become like Jesus. You're required to participate in this battle, this fight against sin. The Jews in Persia had permission to defend themselves. We have so much more than permission. We have the power and promises of God that fuel our progress in him. Number five. Number five. See or believe that God is sovereign in the placement of his people. In the beginning of the book of Esther, think about how this study started. The first chapter in particular, if you can remember that far back. The author of Esther informed us that Xerxes, the king, reigned in 127 provinces. And at that point in the text, in chapter 1, there was no, zero mention of any Jews at all. But when we arrive in chapter 8, the chapter we're in today, two out of the three most powerful people in the Persian Empire are God's people. 
are the Jewish people. There's no way you see that coming if you're a first-time reader of this story. It don't matter how perceptive you are. You don't see that coming. But you know who did see it coming? God did. He didn't just see it coming. He orchestrated it. His plans. He put this together. He fulfilled this plan. He carried out these actions. God doesn't just put um, the, the right things in place and let them unfold however they will. He puts the, doesn't put the circumstances here and, well, maybe they'll make this choice and then this thing will happen. And Oh, look, it, it worked. No, God is orchestrating every single detail here. He's doing it. But here's the thing. God doesn't just put his people in places of power and positions of authority. God even puts his enemies in positions of power for his own purposes. I mean, think about what the, the scriptures teach us. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. God tells Pharaoh, God tells the enemy of his people, I have let you live for this purpose. This is what he says. To show my power and to make my name uh, known on the whole earth. That's what he says to his enemy. Jesus says something similar in John chapter 9. Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all. If it had not been given to you from above, consider Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. It says, The Lord prepares everything for his purposes, even the wicked for the day of disaster. So, what do we take from this? How do we live out this? How does this inform our thinking? It calls us to rest. You can rest knowing God's omnipotence, knowing his sovereignty, knowing he's in control, and not for a moment does that fade or wane. Be encouraged that no matter who is the ruler of this land or any other land, that he or she is in God's hand. He's not caught off guard by any ruler or their actions. Number six. Number six. See Jesus as a far better mediator than Esther. We've said this before in our study of Esther. We've made this application before. It's in the text again this morning, though, so I want to point it out quickly to you to remind us. There is no one more qualified to plead your case, to plead on your behalf than Jesus Christ. If you want a picture of that pleading, of Jesus' role as our great high priest before the Father and, and his role in actions and activity towards us, go and meditate on Hebrews 4 and 5 this week. Just write that down in your notes and go and read and, 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 and commit that to your heart this week and how Jesus has acted on our behalf as our great high priest, as our mediator. Oh, the joy of knowing that he is he is far better mediator than Esther, and that he, he loves doing his job. He doesn't just, just do it. He doesn't just dread it. It brings him delight to be our mediator. Esther could barely gain access to the king herself twice. The golden scepter was extended to her. But with Christ, our access to the Father is never in doubt. We have a great high priest and a great mediator. And Jesus doesn't just ask on our behalf. He acts on our behalf. What a savior. What a savior we have in Christ. And that's the reality. That's the great reality of the book of Esther and of chapter 8 that we've seen week after week, this gospel thread in the book of Esther. That Xerxes, the king, the earthly king in Persia, is ambivalent to who lives or dies. If it's left up to him, he, he probably wouldn't have done anything for the Jews. He, he wasn't even perceptive enough to know or to think about it or to think about the injustice here. Unlike Xerxes, our heavenly father is not in need of being convinced to act on our behalf. He's not simply contemplating our salvation. He's completing it. He's already completed it in the work of his son. How amazing is that? That's the gospel truth that we see, that, that, that the father didn't need convincing. He didn't need somebody to go before him and say, hey, God, would you, would you do this for them? 
that he, it was his initiative, that he sent his son to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. He sent his son to die a criminal's death, to be mutilated and beaten and broken and hung to a, a tree for our offenses, for our sin, taking the wrath of God in himself and then being buried and raised in three days, showing that he had conquered death, that he'd conquered the grave, and that your sin has been dealt with eternally, that he's taken your wrath if you will but come to him in faith. So will you do that today? Will you come to him and say, I acknowledge, I realize, I confess, it breaks my heart. I'm weeping over the fact that I'm a sinner and I've violated your law. As creator God, I've rebelled against you. But I know that your son died in my place. I confess him as Lord. I ask to be forgiven of my sins. I give my life to Christ from now on. For this point forward, Jesus is my king. He's my Lord. Did you do that? We don't have to try to persuade God to rescue us. He's been working to overcome our rebellion before you were ever born. Our last application in the text, number seven. See that God's love changes everything. Realize, believe this morning that God's love changes everything. And then then, then seeing this, recognize the contrast again that we've already made with Mordecai. Put that back in your mind, that in chapter 4, sackcloth and ashes, and then in chapter 8, he's walking around town with these splendid new royal robes and this crown, and the the crowd cheers. Now, change occurred in Mordecai such that he would never be the same. In an even more dramatic fashion, God's love transforms us. God's grace, his mercy towards us transforms us more than just a physical golden ring and the power that comes with it, more than just fancy new clothes and a crown. God's love transforms us when he comes to us in our brokenness, when we were dead in sins, when we were filthy because of our own unrighteousness and sinfulness. He makes us alive in Christ gives us the righteousness of his son, that exchange takes place. We are given the the righteousness of Christ and we are made alive in him. And then he empowers us to go and live on this earth, on this planet, filled with his spirit as his workmanship. Friends, there's a transformation that happens there that changes everything. Mordecai's transition was brought about by the work of another. And so is ours. So is ours. So may we this morning, my prayer for us, church, in studying through this text has been that we would be able to join the Apostle Paul in saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. It was not in vain. Pray that he would transform our hearts and lives and continue to, as his mercy and grace leaves no other result. Let's pray together. Father God, we give you this time as we respond to your word in our hearts. God, I pray if there's one here today who maybe like some of these people in Persia have, have claimed to be a Christian, have announced Christianity to be what they're following, but there's no transformation that's taken place. There's no life change. There's no heart change. There's no uh, being born again that's ever happened in their life. God, would, would today be the day of salvation? Would they see King Jesus, our mediator, our great high priest, the one who went before God on our behalf, the one who took our sin, would they see that as the greatest news in the entire world and know that their only hope in life and death is to cling to the cross of Christ. God, as believers, would you bring us there again this morning that we would pause at this time 
in the chaos in this world and the, the chaos around us, we would understand and believe, even as believers, that our only hope in life and death is the cross of Christ. It's the cure. It's the remedy. It's the fix. There's no evil too great that the cross of Christ can't reconcile. I pray that you would, through the joy of our salvation and the burden that is brought on our hearts by the word of God and by the, the commands we're given in Scripture, God, would you compel us to action? Would you compel us to, to be broken for the lost? Would you, by your grace, empower us to plead daily on behalf of lost family members and loved ones and neighbors and friends and coworkers for you to do what only you can do to make dead men alive, to make dead women born again? So we give you this time. We pray that you'd help us to apply the text to live out your word daily. God, we can't do that in our own strength. We need you. So we come before you this morning and lay that bare. Lay that at the foot of the cross and confess it as our, as our confession this morning. We need you. Be with us and go with us from this place. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.